from Meltem Demers and Jill Carlson. Welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a podcast about the bizarre and buzzworthy happenings in the world of cryptocurrency. Each week, we delve into one key theme and examine it through a broader financial, political, and cultural lens to learn from the past, understand the present, and explore the future. All opinions expressed by Meltem, Jill, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Meltem, Jill, and guests may maintain positions in the currencies, assets, and companies discussed in this podcast. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Oh, hi, Jill. Hi there, Meltem. It's good to be back. Oh, we're back, baby. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we've got some stuff we need to talk about here, right? 100%. So much to talk about. So Meltem, did you know that there is an organization out there that consists of a consortium of private members and they're issuing a currency that's aimed at world domination? Did you know this? No way, Jill. No way. Tell me more. (laughs) I'm not actually talking about Libra, although that's true too. I'm talking about the Fed. Oh, dun, dun, dun. If that sounds confusing to our listeners, it's because it is. The Fed is one of the strangest institutions that I've ever looked at. That's right. According to their board of governance, the Fed is not owned by anyone, and it's not private, but it's not public, and it's not really a profit-making institution. Instead, what it is, it's an independent entity, but it sits within the government, and it has a public purpose to manage the U.S. dollar, but it also has private aspects. So let's talk about that. That's right. So the Fed is actually one of the more complex and fascinating structures that I think exists in the U.S. government and U.S. corporate culture, because again, it sounds like a bunch of oxymorons strung up in a row. The Federal Reserve System has a, quote, unique structure that is both public and private and is described as, quote, independent within the government rather than independent of the government. So it's this very confusing structure, right? But the reality is, is the Fed is actually owned by 3,400 member banks who are different classes of stakeholders who contribute capital to help the stability of the FRBs. That's right. And the FRBs are the Federal Reserve Banks. There are about a dozen of them around the country. And what's really interesting to me is that the U.S. government itself doesn't own any shares or any interest in the Federal Reserve System or its member banks. But the U.S. government does get all of the system's annual profits after the member banks get a statutory dividend of 6% on their capital investment, which gets paid out, and they maintain a capital account surplus. And the government also has an interesting level of control over the Fed in that they get to appoint and set the salaries of the highest level employees of the Federal Reserve System. Now, something really interesting here is that I think a lot of us take for granted that the Fed exists, and we assume that it's existed since the dawn of this country, and prior to that, you know, it had its predecessors in the Bank of England and and the other great banks of Europe. But actually, the Federal Reserve Act was passed in 1913. This is all actually quite recent in the grand scheme of things. 
And it was created to address banking panics. It was created out of a sense of distrust or mistrust in the current system. And specifically, it was created to, in many ways, actually centralize control over the monetary system of the United States so that panics like this would not occur again. And with every panic that has occurred since, the powers of the Federal Reserve have actually been expanded. And what's interesting, we've talked about this in some of our episodes during season one, the U.S. actually used to have many different currencies before the Civil War. There were localized currencies, there were still people using gold, there were all sorts of tokens and uh, mechanisms that people were using to exchange values. Some were local, some were national, and as we know, some were global on scale. But what's interesting is really with the introduction of the Federal Reserve System, which is a consortium um, of banks that own this entity. It's very nebulous. It's very large in its nature. It's closely tied to the monetary and fiscal policy-making arms of the U.S. government. Really, what you have is a fascinating experiment in how money is managed. Um, And what's interesting, the tension in the U.S. that we've always explored is the tension that we're going to talk about today, Jill, the tension between private institutions that operate for profit, their shareholders, owners, and leaders, and the public interest. This is the ongoing question in our financial system, Um, the recent financial crisis where we spent trillions of dollars bailing out these institutions has been an interesting experiment. So let's delve right into it. Let's talk about Zuckbucks, Facecoin, Libra, whatever you want to call it. Let's do it. That fundamental question, would you rather be a slave to the state or a slave to the corporate state? Facecoin. Here we are, Jill. Before we delve into Facecoin, though, let's talk about what banks actually do. And I know we've talked about this before, but let's just do a quick refresh. Why do they exist? That's right. So banks started quite simply as a place to put money, but they've obviously evolved into much, much more than that. So they're now institutions that actually extend the money supply in the form of credit. And they also resolve some of the timing mismatch around when people need to receive money and then when people need to withdraw that money. And so as you say, Melton, we've covered this extensively in season one episodes on credit. But it's important to bear in mind because banks, you know, they can start to seem like these sort of opaque behemoth institutions. But really, at the end of the day, it's not rocket science. It's quite simple. It is. And the finance function or the banking function is something that doesn't just exist at banks. When I was a corporate treasurer, what I worked on was internally managing a function that looked much like a bank. We had 14,000 affiliates, this company, this large corporate all over the world, and we would figure out who we were going to lend money to, at what rates, did they want to pay that overnight, did we want to have assets on deposit, really this function of managing capital and managing risk exists within institutions. And as a result, what's happened due to the more sophisticated and increasingly immediate needs of institutions, we've seen disintermediation or digitization 
of all different types of banking functions. It started really with consumer credit. Consumer credit of all types has been disintermediated. Look at what Lending Club has done for personal loans. We look at SoFi and Lending Club for student loans. And now we even have Klarna and Affirm, which are point of sale or layaway lending platforms that allow you at a point of purchase online to split your payment for purchase up into four 12 installments. We also see disintermediation in the SME or small to medium enterprise or business market. There's this thing called factoring, which is, again, as Jill said, if you have an invoice that you need to pay, but you're manufacturing something and you're not going to get paid for another three months, factoring allows you to basically match your payables and receivables for a small chunk of money, for a small amount of interest. There are now dozens of factoring startups raising money and being really successful at disintermediating the small to medium enterprise segment. And the last bastion that's sort of been held on to, at least in the US, is corporate credit and these behemoth banks. And so all of this disintermediation, digitization, and disruption has started at the edges in places where maybe banks weren't as present, at places that weren't historically large profit centers for the banks. And so the banks weren't terribly concerned, but it's moving really quickly now, and it should scare every bank in the world to see what's happening in these different parts of the world with these different types of financial disintermediation. That's right. And for a long time, the huge moat that was keeping the banks in this sort of position of monopoly on on this power to uh, whether it has to do with credit or lending uh, or even just taking custody of funds, money transfer, the huge moat was regulation. For a very long time in most jurisdictions, there were very, and there still are to an extent, very strict regulations around who can do these functions. But as fintech, the rising tide of fintech has taken over some of these, we've seen more and more power to go and lobby regulators to change some of these regulations and open up this this world to these new participants and players. And so that's been a huge trend over the last five, 10 years that's contributed to this. Absolutely. And so let's talk about some of these examples, right? Because I think they're really interesting. So I look at places like China. I look at places like Korea, even places like Turkey. Alipay and WeChat in many parts of the world are already digitizing finance. Um, Hawala, which is the ability for people to sort of send money in this informal way through social networks, has now become a real thing. Hawala systems have been implemented in real life by large social media companies that enabled first text messaging and connection cheaply or free in most cases. They then saw that people were using these apps to exchange money, and they said, hey, we can do that too. And so now in many senses, Alipay and WeChat are full-fledged banking platforms. They enable you to pay. They enable you to manage your wealth. You can even buy ETFs and financial products through these chat platforms, which is pretty amazing. And insurance products, all kinds of things. I want to dive in for a second, though, into that Hawala point. So a Hawala system is what what we refer to as this process where if I'm trying to send money to my cousin in Mexico or my aunt in the UK, I may do that 
not through Western Union, not through a bank, but I may try to do that just by sending money to someone who lives in Mexico, for instance, who has both a U.S. and a Mexican bank account. And so I would send them the money into their U.S. account and they would use their Mexican bank account to send that to my cousin's Mexican bank account. And so as you say, Alipay, WeChat, lots of these startups observed that this was happening anyway. Hawala Systems, though, while in many ways they work better than something like Western Union, in many ways they're also broken because you have to rely on a huge amount of trust in your counterparty. Uh, and you also are breaking the law, actually, in most jurisdictions in the world. Walla Systems are outlawed. Um and so, as you say, that is a huge coup for Alipay, WeChat, and whoever else, even transfer-wise, in a way, to move into these systems and say, hey, we can we can provide a platform to do this more safe and it, in many ways cheaper, better, more efficient than the, the informal systems that exist today. But here's the key challenge, right? The ability to connect uh, payments over messaging isn't really possible without having a strong identity system. And the one thing all of these places where money, messaging, everything's been digitized and put into one platform or one experience, the key thing, the key feature these countries have is a digital identity scheme and the ability to link someone's information with their online transactions over these platforms. And ultimately, um, we're going to get into this, but ultimately this is the last mile problem, right? This is fundamentally one of the things that banks do arguably not very well, given how many money laundering cases there are. I think Deutsche <laughs> Bank is about to get hit with another $2 billion in fines. You know, they laundered a couple bill, no biggie deal. You only um, money laundered a little bit, Meltem. That's only a little bit, Jill. It's okay. We only do it a little bit. But I think this is the, this is the interesting component. If you look at a bank's costs today, if you even look, you know, talking to crypto companies, the majority of cost for financial firms is in compliance. The majority of the people in the organization are focused on compliance and transaction monitoring. And again, one of the really beautiful things about living in a part of the world, operating in a part of the world where you have a national identity scheme and you connect that to a digital platform is that part of the equation, the compliance component, suddenly becomes a lot easier because you can link users with their real world identities. In totally. fact... I was in China last year um, and I was trying to, I was in a cab. I realized I didn't have enough um, renminbi to pay for my taxi. I also think my taxi driver just refused the money I had. He was like, I don't want your shitty paper money. And so I was trying to have WeChat on my phone. I was connecting, um, trying to connect my credit card and I couldn't because I didn't have a Chinese phone number. I didn't have a Chinese ID. So it's interesting that you can't even get into these digital money systems without having an ID. And we'll talk about that as well. So one more thing I want to say just on Alipay and WeChat is that it's not just for sort of these peer-to-peer, -peer, as we call them, not peer-to-peer -peer in the sense of Bitcoin, but person-to-person -person payments. It's also used with merchants, right? It's also accepted yeah. by merchants worldwide. And I have this story where I was actually, I was walking through the Miami airport a few months ago. I remember this tweet, Jill. <laughs> yeah, I had this moment where I was like, wait, what country am I in right now? I had just come off of a month of a lot of travel. And I genuinely, honest to God, had this sort of out-of-body experience. Like, where am I? Because I'm walking through the Miami airport and all over the place, there are signs saying, in Chinese and then also in English, we accept Alipay and WeChat. 
I was like, I'm in Miami. I'm not even in, you know, San Francisco, which has a, a sizable Asian or Chinese population. Um, and so that was a very surreal moment to me. And I think just goes to show how global these systems are and in many ways how ahead of us they are uh, in, in the United States. One last thing I'll mention, um, just to connect all of the dots at this ending point on this chapter. Let's also talk about the credit component. Um, there is now the ability for people to be excluded from these systems if they are bad creditors, if they're bad borrowers, right? And um, the ability now, and you know, we've read a lot of articles over the last few months, we've talked about this in our surveillance capitalism episode, in China now, the ability to link up people's credit history and their credit score with these apps and exclude them from certain types of behaviors based on some reputational event in their financial history, or potentially, you know, some sort of event that's driven on their beliefs, what social group they belong to, maybe they're, maybe they're activists, maybe they're part of a political minority. This ability to start to censor people and limit their economic and social interactions, their ability to travel, their ability to get a passport, their ability to even pay for things, that to me starts to very much get into this scary line of these panopticon corporate states. Um, and so it's something important to keep in mind that I think in, you know, China, especially we've started to see this go to a very dark place with their social scoring system and including credit scoring in how people use these platforms. A hundred percent. And that's something that we'll get into here in the next few minutes as I hope we start to dive into. Oh, oh boy. It's been a while since we've ground our gears. Are yours a little rusty? I, I don't know. I've been grinding my gears without you, Melta, unfortunately, but How it's good to have my best me? Back. You've been cheating on me. <laughs> it's okay. We're back. All right. So let's talk about why. Okay. So Libra, we will get there. We promise. But first, we want to talk about a little bit of context around why this is all happening. What has been going on with Facebook? What has been going on with the tech industry? What has been going on in the economy? So let's dive in. Yeah, macro, macro, baby. Macro. Um, we start high and we go low. We stay, we stay high. That doesn't sound good either. We're just going <laughs> to let that go. All right. So here's what I think is so interesting and what people forget in the midst of all of this Libra news. Facebook is a company in crisis. It has been a company in crisis since October 2017 when the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke. The stock price has been flat. It is not growing at a time when companies like Microsoft and Amazon are reaching trillion-dollar market caps. There is a PR crisis going on. There is a political crisis going on. And there is an HR crisis with high-profile founders of Instagram and WeChat leaving the company, Facebook's co-founder writing a New York Times op-ed about the breakup of Facebook and why he feels Facebook is the most dangerous company in America. There is a lot of pressure on Facebook. That's right. And as you say, this in large part, has been sort of politically driven, right? You know, you have Facebook being accused of meddling in democracy or degrading democracy. You have Facebook being accused of being 
a, a part and parcel of many human rights violations even around the world, yep. enabling these autocratic dictators to do what they're doing by being a platform for their propaganda. Then on the flip side of that, you know, you have regulators screaming uh, the words antitrust at them. You have regulators questioning how could they let this happen? Why are they not in better control of what's going yeah. on to their platform? And then, you know, it, in a way, I, I almost, almost kind of feel for the company insofar as as soon as anyone tries to actually do something about this, then people start screaming that they're deplatforming. Right. And you have even Donald Trump having come out this week saying that, oh, you know, Facebook needs to be broken up or taken down because they're not publishing enough of his own sort of <laughs> viewpoints and, and enough, you know, of that deep red Republican uh, Gotta uh, love it. I don't want to say propaganda, but, but viewpoint. This is not a politics podcast. So, but let's talk realistically about what's happening around the world, right? I think the East, China, um, primarily India, they don't really care about this political tension. They've got economic problems to deal with, and they've got 3 billion people moving up sort of on the socioeconomic ladder. They've got other issues. But if we look at what's happening in Europe and the US right now, Europe implemented GDPR, which is new privacy law. Uh, my firm, CoinShares, where we operate in the UK, we're a European company. Uh, we've been dealing with GDPR. They've just started fining companies for violations of this new policy. Google's getting fined. Facebook will get fined. In the US, um, there's privacy law that is going to get implemented. It is a big topic. Let's also not forget it's election season. 2020 uh, elections are coming up, presidential elections. We've also got a bunch of new seats opening up in the House and in the Senate. And the biggest punching bag of all right now on both sides of the aisle, the one thing that all politicians in America agree on is what, Jill? anti-tech is that what you're talking about yeah facebook must go yeah. down facebook is I, I like to i like to say that facebook is the new goldman sachs because uh, when i was graduating from college <laughs> it was wall street it was the banks it's that the fat were cat bankers back. and now it's the fat cat silicon valley tech bros i know and i'm like what am i doing so wrong or maybe so right that i keep following these these people in these places okay but but look what i also want to talk about briefly is business model right at the end of the day this is about your business facebook as a business right their business model is advertising all of their revenue primarily comes from advertising. So I want to talk about two things right now. First is where are Facebook's users today? So if we look at daily active users, which Facebook publishes in its quarterly reports, they actually have great data. Only 5% of their user base right now, actually 10%, I apologize, is in the US and Canada. Their biggest growing user segment is in APAC and the rest of the world right? Asia Pacific and the rest of the world. And the US um, and Canada and Europe are staying flat. Those markets are not growing. And in fact, we've seen them even shrink slightly. So that's where their users are. Their biggest growth areas in terms of platform users are not in the US and Europe. Now let's talk about where they make money. So the places where Facebook is making money, hand over fist, it's the US and Europe. Over 75% of their revenue and growing comes from the U.S. and Europe. So here you have a company that is completely dependent on advertising revenue in places where they're under tremendous pressure 
and they're seeing stagnation in their user base growth. So what, where do you go? What do you where do? do you where do you go? You go to where your users are. And how are you going to monetize users in a part of the world where they already have viable alternatives or there are a number of viable local alternatives springing up to your platform? And this, to me, is the biggest thing we don't talk about. Facebook needs a new business model. Facebook needs a way to make money. How are they going to do that? They need a Hail Mary pass. What's the Hail Mary pass? Facebook. Become a big Exactly. So let's talk about this. So I, I do think it's important to remember that Facebook has competitors in this realm already. We tend to talk about this, or the media tends to talk about this move as a move that is sort of unprecedented, right? Oh, they're issuing a global currency. That's fine. We'll get into that. But we've got to remember this exists elsewhere already. WeChat, Alipay, et cetera. Yep. And it exists in the biggest markets that Facebook cannot penetrate. But it kind of reminds me, Meltem, of, you know, a few years ago, Facebook launched internet.org, yep. which is intended to basically beam internet down to the emerging world, right? To to connect the unconnected. And I think to connect the, way, the, last, the nouns yes. and the adjectives they used in those press releases were very similar to the ones they're using now. Equality, well, exactly. access, is- freedom, like all of these words that are literally the antithesis of what this company does. Well, this is exactly where I'm going with it because internet.org, right? It's it is intended to connect, you know, the the last users in the world, the last potential users in the world to the internet who don't today have internet access. That is a very feel-good, do-good mission. I do believe that. But let's be honest about the incentives. The incentives are that Facebook has massive, I think on the order of 90 plus penetration of the world that is connected to the internet. And so what do you do then? You start building the roads to get the last the last people there. You start building the infrastructure to get those people that's online right. because that's the only way left to grow that for Facebook. Now that is remarkable. I want to take a second and just call out that is an absolutely remarkable feat by Facebook, oh. firstly, to have even gotten to that point. And it also is, you know, I don't want to diminish, there is something to be said for connecting these users to the internet. Um, That's right. You know, again, but we just need to be honest with ourselves about the incentives at play. Well, and I think this is always the trouble. And this goes back to what we're saying about the Fed. It's very difficult to have a private company that is owned by private shareholders also operate in the best interest of humankind and its users. This is the fundamental tension of capitalist societies, right? So at the end of the day, I do believe inherently, um, most people are good. I don't think the executives at Facebook are sitting there, you know, rubbing their hands together, Mr. Burns style and going, excellent. Like, I, I don't think that's really what's happening here. <laughs> but let's be very realistic about what the executives at Facebook need to do to get paid, right? This is about people getting paid. This is about power. This is about control. And this is about money, right? And they're all intertwined. What they, it's quite literally about money this time. It is. They need more users and they need 
ways to get more money out of each user. So what are you going to do? You're going to go get more users, get more people onto your platform. That 50% of the world that's not yet on the internet, to your point, they're going to try to get on the internet. And now what they need to do is figure out, okay, instead of making, you know, 50 cents per user, dollar per user per year, we need to up that number to 10, 20. We need to get into higher margin businesses that aren't just selling data. We need to start selling goods and services to someone. And so to your point, this has already been done, right? People are already doing this. I'm sure that people in China and the executives at WeChat and Alipay are looking at this and they're they're laughing. Um, but what Lieber describes, right, this future that they describe in the white paper, it's already possible in many places in the world. This idea of being able to touch your phone to something and having a pay, like that exists. I've used it. I've done it. It exists. What Facebook has done, though, is they've added this veneer of quote-unquote blockchain and quote-unquote decentralization to it. That's right. And so with that, let's dive into what actually Libra is. We've covered a little bit of the why. What is it? Okay, so what is Libra? Libra has been much anticipated. I think that they first started whispering about it a little over a year ago. But just recently, just in the last couple of weeks, they've come out, they being Facebook, have come out with more details on what it is. So if you ask me, Libra is basically creating a new sort of banking function, payment system. And, you know, interestingly, they're also creating a new instrument that they're issuing. Now, all of, these, all of these words, all of these things, they can be executed without using a blockchain, right? You can have a payment system that's not rely on blockchain. That would be like PayPal or WeChat. Uh, you can have a new token that you've created without relying on a blockchain. Facebook, in fact, did this themselves with their Facebook credits, which they rolled out years ago. Um, but there are elements of this that look kind of blockchain-y or that they've borrowed from the best practices of the blockchain industry. Oh, boy. So one of, one of these elements is the fact that it's a stable coin. Now, of course, there have been many attempts at stable coins in the past, ranging from the sketchy to the failed. Um Tether being in the former category. Uh, Basis Basecoin was a prominent project that shut down a few months ago due to regulatory uncertainty. Um, Die, Maker Die, has been one of the more successful attempts at this. But so Libra is going to be a stablecoin that will be backed by a basket of fiat currencies and other assets. These fiat currencies are going to sit in regulated commercial banks. And they will allow a privileged few with the ability to create and redeem Libra at its net asset value. So Libra, again, being that stable coin. And it's not just fiat currencies. There are also interest-bearing instruments inside of this basket. And what's interesting to me and what's not really clear, again, I think the Libra white paper for me introduced more questions than I answered, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think it's common of crypto projects that publish ambitious white papers and do these big fluffy launches before they built things, um, they can change what's in the basket. And what's really interesting here is these parties that are um, in the Libra consortium and that have the ability to create and re Libra, um, they also get this secondary token. And actually investors can buy a Libra investment token where you know how in the Federal Reserve System, the banks only get 6% of um, the revenues and everything else goes to the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. In this system, 
all of the revenue, all of the income generated by these assets that people are going to basically be giving Facebook. So when I cash in $5 and I get out five Libra, and let's say I keep it in the Facebook system for three months and it gains one or 2% in interest, I don't get any of that. All of that gets paid out to the consortium. And so it's basically a kind of federal reserve hybrid. That's right. Now, what's what's kind of funny to me about this is that the parties who are a part of this consortium, who are going to benefit from this interest and potentially also have insights into the data, et cetera. And transaction fees, by the way. Let's talk yep. about transaction fees. Yep. Don't forget those. So these parties include prominent venture capital funds. They include technology companies like Lyft and Uber. Uh, they include retail merchants, crypto exchanges, but also commercial banks, credit card processors, and also nonprofits and NGOs. It's a real kind of hodgepodge of of parties to this. And to be totally honest with you, if I were living outside of Silicon Valley, if I did not work in the tech industry, I would probably be looking at this list being like, what is going on here? Um, now, I mean, the, the only reason why I feel like I have any more insight as to what's going on is just some of the insight I've gained over the last few years of being in this industry of what an insider's game this industry often is. And so I think that that is, you know, the explanation for sort of what the venture funds are doing in there, what some of these other tech companies. Right. Whereas then with someone like Visa and MasterCard, it's much more obvious what the overlap would be. Okay. But but let's go high level picture. Libra is not a cryptocurrency. I would concur. It is not. Okay. So let's run down. And that's, that's actually probably a good thing. Sure. I think. But but let's just run down, right? So first of all, there is absolutely no need for a blockchain. Everything Facebook wants to do here, they can do with a regular old database, just the way a bank does it. Including the aspect of it that is, quote unquote, decentralized amongst these consortium participants, you can achieve that with a database. 100%. Right. And again, it's so there's this great article that David Gerard wrote for uh, Foreign Policy, which is a great publication. We'll put it in the show notes. And here's the quote that I just love. Libra has certainly demonstrated one of the main characteristics of blockchain projects, grandiose claims and egregious nonsense. And I think a lot of the blockchain-y stuff that's described in the white paper and all the other stuff they put on that site makes no sense at all. Here's what else yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, I mean, look, there are aspects of it that are blockchain-y insofar as they've borrowed from the best practices of the industry. Um, whether that's good or bad, we can argue about, but it, it doesn't mean that it's a blockchain. But I just want to give a few examples of that. So the consortium model, this has been attempted by blockchain startups going back to 2015, the most prominent example of which was R3's consortium. Their consensus model, they use a BFT consensus model, which is kind of similar to Cosmos, although not exactly the same. They have a gas model for running smart contracts that's like Ethereum. They have this dual token model you mentioned, like Basis and DAI. And then also, this one stands out to me most amongst any of these points, is that they also have a Swiss foundation, which we all know many, many, many of the sort of prominent blockchain Started with Ethereum, baby. Projects started with Ethereum, have Swiss foundations. Now, 
what they're not saying is that there are huge trade-offs to all of these things, mm-hmm. right? Like these are in many ways the best practices or, you know, the kind of kitchen sink of ideas that the blockchain space has had over the last few years. You forgot but- one key characteristic that they also borrowed. It's that they keep the profits for themselves and their friends. Oh, God. That's not just a crypto thing, Meltem. I think that that's just like a... Look, I think there's some deep ironies here. If you read the white paper, one of the principles of Libra and something I've heard Facebook employees say to my face, which I find fascinating, is that Facebook wants to give people an inherent right to control the fruits of their label labor. And I know you no, like their legal labor. Their legal labor, yes. So here's my question. If you keep all of the interest on assets you're buying with other people's float, how is that accomplishing that goal? I don't understand. I, yeah, I let's just hang on. I want to just do a diversion here on that point for a second. They want to give people the right to control the fruit of their legal labor. Like there is a lot to unpack there, but mostly more than anything, there is just a lot of this very hand wavy language in the mission statement. And that's fine. Every corporate project, every startup has a lot of hand wavy high level language, but because this is kind of our area, it, it grinds our gears. And so I think we need to talk about it for a second. Like this point in particular, I mean, this is just some like, you know, Ayn Rand fever dream, right? Of, Ugh. oh, I want to have the right to control the fruit of my legal labor. It sounds very anarcho-capitalist, very libertarian. And I'm not really sure what it has to do with banking the unbanked, which is the other really hand-wavy part of this. It's extraordinarily vague. Their language conflates problems of financial access with problems of poverty, with with problems of access to loans and loan sharks. Like, if you want to talk about solving one of these problems, I strongly believe you've got to just be specific. No, there's talk about Jill. Hold on, hold on. You're asking for way too much. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna go up here and I'm gonna wave this magic wand. It's decentralized, it's open, it's it's uh it's fair, it's better. Um, my favorite phrase, which we're gonna talk about in a minute, but we're gonna bank the unbanked. Like, holy shit, I feel so bad for whoever the unbanked is because every blockchain project is gonna do something for the unbanked when all they do is keep the profits for the insiders. Like it has nothing to do with that at all. So look, there's nothing crypto about it. It's not decentralized. It's a fully centralized system of 100 people who know and trust and need daddy Facebook to love them and give them their dividend. It's not open, right? Facebook gets to decide who's in or out. And in what world are VCs going to be central bankers? We've talked about this before. This is one of the interesting points about basis. Like our central bankers are now going to wear all birds instead of, you know, Ferragamos, but same thing. And the path to decentralization that they talk about, like, it makes no sense. There's going to be a bank somewhere that has to hold these currencies. It's crazy. So there's a Sarah Jamie Lewis quote, right? Do you want to say it, Jill? Because I think she nailed it. And Sarah Jamie Lewis yeah, so- runs a project called Open Privacy. She's great. 
Yeah, follow her on Twitter for sure, because that's where we got this from. And she says, I can't wait for a cryptocurrency with the ethics of Uber, the censorship resistance of PayPal, and the centralization of Visa all tied up under the proven privacy of Facebook. Exactly. Okay. So let's talk about the most offensive piece of Libra to me, which is the great mass of the unbanked. Can we please just this vague hand wavy like, oh, we're going to bank the unbanked. It very much feels like this is an ideological project. Like some people at Facebook got together. They smoked some good legal California weed, you know, legal. California does that. Maybe they had a few CBD drinks too. Um, and they sat down and they got a whiteboard and they threw up all of the hot phrases they thought would get people all hot and bothered for Libra. And the great unbanked masses made their way into it. And it's so offensive. As you say, this is not just a Facebook thing. This is really an industry thing. This is the fintech industry. This is the cryptocurrency space. And as you know, Meltem, this is one of the areas that really grinds my gears. And this was in in a large part uh, the inspiration behind the work I've been doing over the last year with the Open Money Initiative. 100%. You can't sit in a Silicon Valley office and say, oh, we're going to we're gonna bank the unbanked. Right. Hold on. Let me paint the picture for you, though, right? So David Marcus, who's the Facebook executive in charge of Libra, right, he's been telling the press the problems of banking the unbanked are technical, that they just can't move money fast enough because they don't have a blockchain. And that's not true at all. Moving numbers around on a computer is, like, pretty fast. Elizabeth Rossiello, who's the founder of BitPesa, I've known her and worked with her for five years now. She is sitting in Kenya and in Senegal with her team, helping people figure out how to send money. And she will tell you, and every entrepreneur who's actually worked in these regions who are not David Marcus, and no offense to David, like he's doing great things, but you're sitting in the most luxurious office in Silicon Valley, eating catered, organic, farm-grown vegetables, having like a $17 kombucha. These people are sitting in these parts of the world where people are actually unbanked. The problem is not technical. It's last mile. How do you get the money into and out of the system? And how do you get the money to someone who actually doesn't have an identity? On paper, these people do not exist. They are just a cell phone number. They are a SIM card number, an IMEI number, right? These people technically do not exist. That is that is the problem. It's not a technology problem. It's a systemic social problem. Well, right. And, and here's the real problem is that The problem is going to look very different depending on what demographic you're targeting, depending on what geography. Most of the payment solutions and remittances solutions and solutions to these last mile problems, they look very different from geography to geography. And that's why we've seen a lot of the payment systems that have emerged out of of the developing world. They're very geographically localized, right? What works in Kenya say M-Pesa, it's going to look very different from the kind of Gojek system that exists in parts of Southeast East Asia, where you have the equivalent of Uber drivers working as the cash in cash out ramp, right? Uh, right? Then that system is going to look very different from what works in Latin America and so on and so on and so on. And so it and not e- not even to mention the unbanked problem in the United States, which is also part of what they mention in this white paper. And so, 
you know, you just run into this issue where you're trying to paint with such a broad brush brush stroke in order to create a vision that people can really get behind. But what you really need to be focused on are those details because those details are what's going to influence product. They're what's going to make your product actually work for a given population. Um, and it's, it's very hard to do otherwise. And I will give Facebook the credit that they managed to pull this off with WhatsApp. They did manage to pull this off with their messaging system. Of course, WhatsApp was created outside of Facebook. It gained a lot of its traction prior to Facebook. Um, but they did manage to create a system uh, of, of communication that works across geographies, across borders, et cetera. So kudos to them for trying here with with money and not just messages. Um, right. but I do think that the problem is much, much more difficult than right. that maybe they're admitting to. But I also think, um, look, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. This is said often. And I think what we have here is a case of, and, and by the way, this is not unique to Facebook. This is basically every crypto project. It's a lot of fintech projects. And again, I think, you know, later on when we talk about what we think is going to happen, right now, everyone's in the ideation phase. The white paper just launched. Everyone's like super excited. It's buzzy. Everyone wants to be in the consortium. Libra is super hot. I think over the next 18, 24, 36 months, as they actually try to build this, the reality is going to set in. And I think that's when you start to realize that most of the problems that exist are not technology problems. Most of the problems that exist this are social coordination problems and they're systemic problems. But I think it is naive for a company to attempt to say that somehow with this magical blockchain technology wand, all of the problems in the world of finance and banking, the unbanked, are just going to magically evaporate. I think that's ludicrous. I think it's offensive and it's completely inaccurate. But look, time will tell. Maybe the blockchain will magically make everything possible. I'm, I'm still waiting, Jill. <laughs> I hope so. I'm like you. I hope, so. I hope so. Okay. But really what we're describing here when we talk about Libra, we're talking, my favorite take is it's a shadow bank, right? The Libra token is, I've heard it described as a foreign exchange derivative, a synthetic asset derived from a basket of other assets. An ETF. Yeah, the BitMEX takes, so we'll put this in the show notes, BitMEX wrote a great analysis where they compared the basket Libra's making to an existing ETF that's like a global market ETF uh, that returns on average 2.6% to users for an expense of five basis points. And the, it's shockingly um, comparable. All right. So the big question is, it's 2019, it's June 2019, right? Who knows when this thing will get built? Who knows when this thing will get implemented? I am of the viewpoint, look, net net, Libra is going to get built. It's going to get rolled out. It's either going to be a stunning success or it's going to be like internet.org where it kind of gets talked about and then it kind of fizzles out and it's this weird zombie thing that kind of exists. Who knows what's going to happen? I think it's great that people are talking about Bitcoin. I think it's great that people are talking about the sharp contrast between what Libra is and what Bitcoin is. And if this is a way to get, you know, Trojan horse effectively, 2 billion people who use Facebook to be really into Bitcoin, 
I'm 100% okay with that. I mean, we're already seeing it reflected in the price, right? This run up from 7K to 14K. Jesus. It's great. But I don't, know, I don't know if that was just Libra or if that's the happening or what, but we can get into that next episode. But I, I do think that there is something there to this being an on-ramp for people. Totally. And you know what I will say? Facebook builds beautiful, easy-to-use products supported by amazing engineering teams who know how to build stuff for scale. So I know, Jill, this week you were tweeting about the Coinbase outage and why it keeps happening every time <laughs> users get on the platform. That was a genuine question. I wasn't trying to grind any gears. No, no, no. It, it happens with a lot of really large platforms. We see a lot of volume. It's it's very computationally expensive. Not with Facebook. No, and that's the great thing, right? Facebook's going to have great SDKs and developer toolkits. Facebook's going to have great reference libraries. Um, the language they're using, Move, is really simple. It's even simpler than Solidity. Um, Facebook has an army of top, top engineers who are going to build something really beautiful, really usable, really reliable. And I think it's going to be great. Now, my hope is that all those engineers after working on Libra will have a crisis of conscience and go work in Bitcoin or start Bitcoin companies. But <laughs> that's just my dream. What can I say? You never know. <laughs> but let's talk about, again, um, the macro picture here. What does this mean? What do we think is going to happen? So number one, the big thing I'm excited about is every single bank, every single corporation is looking at issuing a digital currency. They did, I can tell you, they did it in 2016, they did it in 2017, because I sat through hundreds of calls and meetings with companies working on this. Um, Alibaba, if you'll remember, they did tons of PR around their blockchain and oh, how they were going to roll out a currency. And they basically decided it wasn't worth it because they got to do everything they wanted without the complexity. But look, JP Morgan has their JP Morgan coin. They're going to expand its use outside of just their internal system. Right now, it's one JP Morgan coin equals one USD. But JP Morgan has 30,000 middle market and 1,700 corporate banking clients. They're big. Rakuten is rolling out a coin. The online giant has over 100 million users. Annually, they pay out over $9 billion in loyalty rewards, um, similar to what Lolly does, but in US dollars. They want to roll out a Rakuten coin. SBI Holdings in Japan has already rolled out their S coin, which allows for mobile phone payments and also allows people to mint their own tokens um, on this platform. And then famously, Telegram um, has TON. Their TON token is going to be used in application. They have 250 million users. Not really clear what it does yet. Supposedly going to get testnet soon. Goldman just this week announced their intention to potentially issue a coin. Every corporation, every bank, every player is going to have a coin because it's so easy at this point. Why wouldn't you? It's important to recognize, though, that doesn't necessarily mean blockchain. And the fact that it doesn't necessarily mean blockchain, that's actually not a bad thing. I think in many ways that's a good thing. I think that the Facebook Facebook position is actually much stronger when they're not using a blockchain, right? Agreed. I will say- is building products that have strong uptime, strong network effect. And and I think that they'll be able to do that here, but it just it doesn't need a blockchain, and that's fine. That's great. what I do. What I will say here is there is starting to be bifurcation between companies who are building their own private permission chains. All the things I talked about are that versus companies like Square and Fidelity who are building on top of 
public chains, Microsoft building on top of Bitcoin and Ethereum. You have a number of companies who are building on public networks. And what's been really interesting, actually, is if you look at the earnings, companies who are building on public chains and touching actual cryptocurrencies versus companies who are doing private chain stuff, guess which ones are seeing a bigger pop in market cap? I can only guess. Public chain. The, the public. Public chain. Of course. 100%. Of course. 100%. Yeah. So, so that's my number one takeaway. Yeah. No, I think I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, for the record, I actually think that Libra will work provided it gets launched. I don't think, as I say, it'll be a blockchain, but I think that it'll work. Um, and I think it will potentially be revolutionary. Now, will it be revolutionary from the perspective of banking the unbanked? Juries out, mostly because we don't even know what that means, right? That can mean so many different things. But I do think that regardless of what happens, we know that it's already been successful at one thing, which is putting central banks under pressure. Bitcoin, when it was first in introduced, was the first instance of stateless money, right? For the first time in the sort of modern industrialized world, we had this ability to have money that could exist outside of any particular sovereign state. Now, suddenly, we have corporates riffing on this, right? As you say, Meltem, everybody wants to be their own emperor. Everybody wants to be their own king. I remember reading some article a few years ago that was sort of piling on the Facebook fear mongering, saying that, oh, you know, Zuck has always had this obsession with the Emperor Augustus, who sort of conquered the, the known world to the Romans, et cetera, et cetera. But every king throughout history has wanted his face stamped on his own coins. And I think that suddenly now we're seeing the corporate kings of today, there are no exceptions. But I think that, you know, that can be a very scary thing. But if we think about that versus government entities doing this, is it really that much more scary? I don't know. I don't know. Right. Well, another thing is very clear. Banks generally are under pressure, right? And we talked about this at the start of the episode. The banking sector, the financial services sector, is continuing to be under attack by smaller, nimbler, and hyper-specialized players. They don't have the technical debt. They don't have the regulatory complexity of having many different functions and many different types of services crammed into one bucket. And I feel like, you know, every five to 10 years in every industry, we see this um, verticalization where people bring everything in-house, try to streamline, create efficiencies of scale, synergies, if you will, in consulting speak. And then, you know, Inner 10 years... Speed. 10 years later, they unbundle it all. Um, I feel like in finance right now, we're going through the great unbundling where everything's getting chopped up and rolled out and spun out as its own business unit because arguably it's more valuable that way. I wonder if, you know, the next wave of recentralization and verticalization is going to be these pieces that have gotten chopped out of banks getting folded into other platforms that aren't necessarily financial services platforms. But arguably, my view is every company is a bank in some way. Every company already has a finance function. And so we're going to continue to see this move. It's already happened. WeChat now, and Alipay are the great example. Tencent is an absolute killer. That's that's a really good point, though, Meltem, is that really what we're talking about in many ways is just replicating what already exists in the banks. And maybe it's replicating it with a better product wrapped around it. Maybe it's replicating it in a new, more global way. 
But at the end of the day, I have this sense of, okay, meet the new banks, same as the old banks, right? Because at the end of the day, all of these corporate coins, all of these new corporate payment systems, whatever, they're going to continue to be regulated. And you know, people love to say, oh, well, code has, you know, code has no jurisdiction. People say this of Bitcoin. And I always think of Marco Santori, who's a prominent lawyer in the space, what he said, which is, bro, code has like every jurisdiction. Well, and didn't that's you hear be- the Trump administration is looking at banning encryption again. It's like 1980s I- all over again. Oh, oh, I know. Oh, I know. It's all very exciting. But as you say, this is not a political podcast. But we do have to bring it up because. Libra doesn't exist in a vacuum. These trends don't exist in a vacuum. They exist as part of these greater macro changes that are happening. And we have to acknowledge that whatever, say, Libra will offer, it's going to be regulated. It's going to have to comply with the KYC AML standards. It's going to need probably a money transmission license in the United States, or at least any wallet provider will. And so At the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves, in what ways is this different? In what ways is this an innovation over what exists today? And I do think that there are reasonable answers to that, but they're probably not the same answers that Bitcoin offers us. So, and, and I think that's fine. The last thing I want to say, and I want to go back to one of my favorite episodes from the last season, episode 10, Surveillance Capitalism, brilliant book by Shoshana Zubkin, if you haven't read it yet. The evolution from the physical realm to the digital realm is continuing, and panopticon money is coming, and you better bet your ass that there is no way you can escape it. It's coming. Money is being digitized. Finance is being digitized. And to me, the biggest implications of a money system tied to Facebook, for the first time, Facebook will be able to assign identities to all of its users across all of its platforms. And on top of that, they'll be able to link those users to real-world identities if they want to use Libra, if they want to use this money. And so what if now... We have to acknowledge Facebook does say, Libra, excuse me, Libra does say, we're not going to do this. We're not going to use your data. We're not going to monetize your data off of the Libra platform. That they say is part of the reason for having this independent Swiss entity run it. But if you read the fine print, eh, they can still do that. And of course, from a technical perspective, they can absolutely still do that. There's a difference, as the block stack guys like to say, between don't be evil and can't be evil. Exactly. But look, at the end of the day, I think this is just one step towards a future that we all know is inevitable. And if anything, my hope with all of this and my takeaway from all of this is Bitcoin matters now more than ever. It matters more than ever. And people are are going to need to learn the difference between Bitcoin and something like Libra. It's already being talked about. The level of dialogue is still very basic. But as people get more familiar with these concepts, as they become part of the mainstream media, people are going to get more and more familiar with it. Just look at how different people's perception of Bitcoin in you know 2015 was versus how it is now. People are moving up the learning curve. And because of this Libra news, journalists are now talking about the features of Bitcoin that, in my view, make it so valuable to individuals who crave 
privacy and self-sovereignty. And so to me, this is just the start of the great battle that is coming. It's a battle I'm really excited about, and we haven't even seen it yet. But the battle is the battle between decentralized, permissionless, open systems like Bitcoin, right? And closed walled gardens controlled by centralized, powerful entities. It's a battle between the old guard and the new guard. And it'll be interesting to see who wins. We got front row seats, baby. (laughs) (laughs) That is happening for sure. Well, Jill, it feels really good to be back grinding gears with you. This is a fun one. It does. All right, friends. We'll be back. We love you. We can't wait to start season two. All right. See you next time. Hey, this is Jill and Melton. Thanks for joining us for another week of What Grinds My Gears. We love hearing from you, so please... Hit us up on Twitter, send us feedback, join the conversation. Follow us on Medium at What Grinds My Gears, where we share a summary of each week's episode, references, reading materials, and of course, memes. Our episodes go live every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern time. And if you're a crazy person like us, make sure you subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode and get it in time for your morning commute. Share it with your friends, or better yet, share it with your enemies. Thank you so much for listening. We love you, and we'll see you next time for What Grinds My Gears.